0: Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Tuesday, July 7th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the story of the man who invented the N95 mask. Birds in Canada have changed their tune in an unprecedented way that has stumped scientists. A few ways to become a citizen scientist of your own in your free time the 16th century reading machine recreated by engineering students in 2018, and a new way to annoy your co-workers. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Starting today with the story of Peter Tsai, the inventor of the N95 mask, who came out of retirement to work around the clock to help fight COVID-19. Specifically, Psy a materials scientist, patented the filtration material used in disposable N95 masks. And as the man with the original specs, he was bombarded with requests as soon as COVID-19 ramped up. Labs, hospitals, companies were all calling up to ask about how to increase production and, short of that, how the masks could be sterilized for reuse. N95 masks are unique among other cloth face coverings in that they filter out most, or 95% of contaminants. As such, they've become an incredibly hot and vital commodity for healthcare and other essential workers. Determined to do his part, Sai began working close to 20 hours a day, mostly in a volunteer capacity, to find effective ways of decontaminating the N95 masks without losing their filtration capacity. From a laboratory that he set up in his home in Knoxville, Tennessee, he tried boiling, baking, and steaming the masks in addition to leaving them out in the sun. Quoting the Washington Post, After trying multiple approaches in his home, he published an emergency medical report which proposed a variety of methods for cleaning and reusing N95 masks without compromising the electrostatic charge required for the filtration system to function. His central finding was that N95 masks can be heated at 158 degrees Fahrenheit for 60 minutes using a dry heat method without diminishing the filtration technology, and his hypothesis was validated by the National Institutes of Health. After the first report was published in April, he continued to experiment, eagerly sharing his findings with the scientific community and anyone who asked. He's spread the word about the optimal material to use for homemade masks. His suggestion, non-woven fabrics, such as car shop towels, end quote. He's since been approached by a number of other companies asking for his expertise, like the Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee, who wanted to convert their carbon fiber processing facility into a filtration cloth facility to produce the filters needed for N95s. Sai was happy to lend a hand, and Merlin Theodore, the director of the Carbon Fiber Technology Facility at the lab, said that Sai saved the company several months of work on the complicated transition process. Oak Ridge then shared Sai's guidance with a corporation called Cummins, which also wanted to pivot to the respirator filtration material, and they are now manufacturing about a million respirator masks a day. Throughout his consulting with companies like Oak Ridge, Cy has refused compensation, except where required by company policy. He genuinely just wants to help the cause. Quoting the Washington Post, His breakthrough on the mask came when he was leading a research team at the University of Tennessee in 1992. The team's goal was to develop an electrostatic charging technology, coincidentally called Corona Charging, to filter out unwanted particles his invention eventually became the foundation of the N95 respiratory mask. Over the course of his career in textile manufacturing, engineering, and teaching at the University of Tennessee, Sai has earned 12 U.S. patents in filtration technology, including his latest hydrostatic charging method, which makes respiratory masks twice as efficient as his initial invention, end quote. And like all true heroes, Sai insists that the real heroes of the crisis are the healthcare workers— he's just doing his job he says though of course since he retired 2 years ago he is kind of going above and beyond just by still doing his job and in any case i am very glad that we have people like peter sai in the world sparrows across canada have changed their tune Most birds have unique, largely unchanging calls that they use to mark territory and attract mates. They're distinctive enough that many birders can recognize different species based on the call alone, without even seeing the bird itself. It's not unusual for those bird calls to evolve slowly over time, but white-throated sparrows across western and central Canada have perturbed ornithologists with their relatively rapid change in song over just about two decades. The finding was documented in a recently published study in the journal Current Biology and used crowdsourced recordings from apps eBirds and Xenocanto to verify a change from a three-note call to a two-note call. Such technology means more changing patterns like this that have previously gone undetected may continue to be discovered. But this one is the first of its kind. Ken Otter of the University of Northern British Columbia and lead author of the study, who strangely chose to study birds and not his adorable semi-aquatic mammalian namesake, told National Geographic, quote, There is nothing that we know of that is spread like this, end quote. Otter first noticed something off in the late 90s, quoting National Geographic. He was doing field work in British Columbia, just west of the Rocky Mountains, with a colleague who usually studies eastern populations of the species. We were walking around, and suddenly, he said, "'Your sparrows sound weird.' Otter hadn't noticed it before, but agreed. They did sound different." The new song trend emerged by the 1990s in northern British Columbia, where Otter and his colleague first heard the weird call. From there, it crept east, moving across Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. In 2004, about half the sparrows in Alberta were singing the new doublet ending. But by 2014, every sparrow in the area had made the shift. By 2015, every sparrow west of central Ontario was singing the doublet ending, and it didn't stop there. In western Quebec, nearly 2,000 miles from where the song began, it's still spreading. End quote. Otter notes that it's not unusual for one or a few birds to change the call a little, but it's rare for them to pick up the change en masse. Knowing they must be learning from each other and thinking that they were probably spreading the new call from east to west, the researchers strapped geolocators to 50 male sparrows to track their migration patterns in 2013 and 2016. Quoting again, Otter says he expected the western sparrow populations to travel directly south to their overwintering areas in California. Instead, the birds crossed the Rocky Mountains, meeting up with eastern populations in the southern Great Plains of the United States, in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Kansas. The convergence of western and eastern sparrows may act as a tutoring ground for young males, which could learn the new song before returning to their respective breeding ranges. End quote. The team and other scientists remain a bit stumped on why the change has happened, and surprised at how quickly and broadly it has taken over. Otter's team found that the new two-note call is not any better or worse at defending territory or attracting mates than the old three-note call. The only thing that we can think of is that the females might have a preference for something that's slightly novel, Otter says. So it's still a mystery, but with crowdsourced apps building a database for researchers and a growing number of bird enthusiasts in quarantine, we may be finding more and more rapidly evolving bird calls if not figuring out the answers to them. And speaking of all of those new bird enthusiasts, I don't know if you have one in your life or if you are the new bird-watching fan in your household, but it is definitely a real trend that has picked up. Just ask wildlife ecologist Allers Adam, who shared the following on Twitter, quote, Quarantine week three. My wife has started throwing baby showers for all the birds nesting in our backyard. Please send help. End quote and he included a photo of the birds in said nest with a string of colorful party pennants strung up beside them. Link in the show notes if you want to see it. I'm pretty sure that my friends who have gotten into birdwatching are just one step away from that. If you're looking for a way to fill the time that you'd usually spend going to the movies or out to concerts or hanging with friends or whatever, did you know that there are hundreds of citizen scientist projects that you can contribute to? There's the eBird and Xenocanto apps that I mentioned in the last segment where you can record and upload bird songs from around the world, but Gizmodo also recently recommended 19 others that will give you something to do and give you a sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself. A super important one as wildfire season kicks off in the western US is the Environmental Protection Agency's SmokeSense portal, where you can tag instances of wildfire smoke and how it's affecting the health of the local population. But if you don't live anywhere at risk of wildfires, you can still help with other projects like Globe at Night, which asks you to note how visible various constellations are on specific dates in order to study the effects of light pollution. Or for the more historically-minded folks, you can transcribe the Smithsonian's archives by joining their digital volunteers program. The Library of Congress also has a similar program called By the People. If you've got a strong computer and prefer a more passive way of giving back, you can take part in folding at home. Quoting Gizmodo, Folding at Home has been using spare CPU cycles on the computers of volunteers to crunch through difficult protein calculations since 2000. Right now, you can help with research into the coronavirus. Install a small desktop app, and when you're not using your computer, the program will add its processing power to help with scientific data analysis." End quote. If you live somewhere without a lot of noise, consider contributing to NASA's Silent Earth Project, which seeks to track places on the planet where human-made noise has yet to reach. All you have to do is make a recording wherever you are and submit it to the project. Or if you're into mobile games, you can try Narika, which uses your in-game actions and responses to in-between game surveys to analyze cognitive function and further their research on dementia. For the nature-inclined, you can help build a database of water quality and routes across the U.S. with Stream Selfie, contribute to a restoration project by identifying the animals in photos in Ohio's The Wild's Wildlife Watch Portal, or fight pollution by logging every piece of litter you see and uploading it to the Marine Debris Tracker. There are a whole bunch more at the link in the show notes, which also links out to all the ones that I mentioned. And if you poke around, you can find tons and tons more. So if you're bored of Netflix and looking for something else to do, why not give being a citizen scientist a go? Are you someone who always picks up a book, starts reading it, and then sees another book and abandons the first one? Repeat ad nauseam. Ever wish you could just read multiple books at one time? Agostino Ramelli, a 16th century Italian military engineer, had that wish as well, so he designed a giant contraption that would allow a person to read eight books at once. The device was a large, revolving wooden wheel with angled shelves for books. Ramelli said of his design, quote, "...this is a beautiful and ingenious machine, very useful and convenient for anyone who takes pleasure in study, especially those who are indisposed and tormented by gout. Moreover, it has another fine convenience in that it occupies very little space in the place where it is set." End quote. Yeah, occupies very little space might be a relative concept, While he himself never built it, a group of undergrad engineering students at the Rochester Institute of Technology did in 2018, and let me tell you, it occupies a fair bit of space. It appears to be about six feet in diameter and two or three feet wide. The engineering students meticulously studied Ramelli's design and used historically accurate materials like European beech and white oak, but opted for modern power tools to complete the project. Quoting Atlas Obscura, Each weighs about 600 pounds and has room for eight books. Users can take a seat and spin the wooden cases, which are carefully weighted to avoid unintended movements. It's also worth getting close to observe the core mechanism, a complex epicyclic gearing system that consists of outer gears rotating around a central gear, much like the planets moving around the sun. End quote. And while it's certainly a feat of engineering that likely inspired other wheels for different purposes at the time, Matt Weigren, a student who worked on the project, noted that it wasn't very practical and the same goals could have been achieved more efficiently with something like a Ferris wheel using weighted cradles on a gear system instead of the shelves. I'll also add that I don't know how helpful this is at all for reading multiple books at once, like unless your process is wanting to read one sentence of a book, pushing the wheel along to read another quick passage of the next one and then turning the wheel to the next one and the next one and so on. Even for research, it's way more cumbersome and time-consuming to have to spin the wheel round and round than simply having a stack on your desk. Though it does seem that that exact problem is what other contemporary inventions were trying to achieve, and Ramelli was simply trying to innovate. Other ones at the time usually functioned across a plane, more like a Lazy Susan. And quoting *Alice Obscura, Stephen Galbraith, curator of the Carey Collection, suspects that the Italian engineer was trying to improve this design and cater to an increasing need to cross-reference books, which were often large and heavy. Through the 16th century, books are beginning to talk to each other a lot more. One might reference another. So a book wheel could have been convenient, he says. Some scholars say it's the beginning of the idea of hypertext, the idea that a reader can sit in one spot and have access to multiple texts at once. End quote. Now that, I will say, is kind of cool, to think that this giant wooden monstrosity was a 16th century attempt at the convenience and cross-referencing afforded by the internet in the information age. As cool as the reading machine looks, and seriously, go check it out at the link in the show notes, I'm kind of glad that we have smartphones and e-readers now instead. Though going forward, I will definitely think twice before complaining about how annoying it is to switch between tabs when researching. And finally today, if you were the gym of your office, you may be sad that remote work has all but done away with opportunities to prank your coworkers. But never fear, Matt Reed, the man who previously introduced the ability to create an AI-powered twin of yourself for Zoom calls, is back at it with another way to have fun in the virtual office. Launched just this morning, Invite Rick enables you to Rickroll your coworkers on your Zoom calls. Unfortunately, as I assumed from the title of the site, it doesn't actually call upon Rick Astley in a cameo app sort of way. Instead, it's just a gif of him dancing from the Never Gonna Give You Up music video set on an 80s-themed background. The way it works is by copying and pasting your Zoom Room URL into the form on the Invite Rick website, clicking Invite Rick, and then waiting for him to join your call. As the video on the site shows, you may have to wait a little bit for Rick to join if there are people ahead of you. And that is because creator Matt Reed is calling into each meeting himself from his personal Zoom account, which he rebranded as Rick Astley, and uses the minicam virtual camera software to change the camera from being of him to of the GIF. The promo video also shows everyone being surprised and delighted at being Rickrolled, but I would use this cautiously. Know your audience. If you have this kind of relationship with your coworkers or your friends, go for it. But, you know, maybe don't try it at any kind of serious meeting or with the boss who is a stickler for the rules. A few commenters online are already pointing out that this encourages Zoom bombing and other bad video call etiquette, which from a larger perspective, they may have a point. But it is important to make the distinction that whereas Zoom bombing is a random stranger finding a random room to invade in a usually inappropriate manner, this is being done with the consent of at least one person actually in the room. So again, it's not for everyone, but fairly harmless in the grand scheme of things. Oh, and also, this is totally in violation of Zoom's rules and regulations, so Matt Reed doesn't expect it to last for long which means if you do want to try it out, you should probably do it sooner rather than later. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you tomorrow.